Malcolm takes his comic book collecting very seriously. We have a room dedicated to it. It's got uh, light controls and, and atmosphere controls and safes and other things in it. And I gotta say, that kind of dedication, it's something akin to love. This week on Interstates, Malcolm Mobutu Smith on finding that diamond in the rough. Then we talk with Bill Carroll, who's using the quantitative skills he developed as a chemist to analyze the billboard charts of the 1960s and 70s. That's all coming up on Interstates, right after this. By all accounts, Walter Benjamin was a pretty obsessive book collector. Benjamin was a German-Jewish philosopher and writer in the first half of the 20th century. One time, not long before France fell to the Third Reich, he almost traded his five-volume collected works of Franz Kafka for a few first editions of Kafka's early writings. Crazy, right? Okay, maybe that's a little hard to connect with if you're not a collector like he was. But if you ever collected baseball cards or Magic the Gathering or Pokemon, maybe you have an inkling. Maybe, like me, you've loved books your whole life. Maybe you, too, wanted to live in a library when you grew up. Maybe you've even collected a few special editions yourself. Years ago, I worked at a used bookstore, and a modern library edition of Joseph Heller's Catch-22 came through. Those modern library editions are so satisfying. They're small, easy to hold in your hands. Their pages are like silk. This Catch-22 has a red cover with a cartoonish drawing of a giant hand whose thumb is pressing down on a man's head while the man thumbs his nose back at the hand. According to the internet, this copy might be worth a couple hundred dollars now. I got it for about five bucks. But as satisfying as it is to talk about the steal, collecting isn't about the money, it's about the having. I'm not selling this book anytime soon. It's staying on my shelf. I might even look at it again in another couple years. Benjamin understood that desire, to hold and to have a particular book. Down to his bones, he understood it. Was it connected to being a Jew in Germany in those first decades of the 20th century? He wrote an essay about book collecting, and he didn't answer that question. The essay is called Unpacking My Library, and it sounds like he was actually surrounded by boxes of books, shelves empty and waiting, when he sat down and wrote it. Benjamin said collecting connected him with the past. There is a spring tide of memories which surges toward any collector as he contemplates his possessions. I don't remember the moment that copy of Catch-22 came into my hands, but that book does bring me back to the store and the months I worked there. I had just graduated college. I was a little lost. I wanted to write books or make radio, but I was short on ideas. But surrounded by all those books, I could dream. And dreaming, it turns out, can be a kind of comfort, like memory. For Benjamin, when you collect, you're collecting memories. It looks like books on your shelves, but it's nostalgia. Nostalgia isn't something you normally create on purpose. But I think that's part of what a collector is doing. Nostalgia for the moment they found the object. Maybe it was lying forgotten in a dusty corner of an antique shop. And nostalgia for the period in life when objects could glow with meaning, like a comic book collector being taken back to that childhood excitement of falling into a superhero story. More on that in a minute. 
first, you should know that Benjamin says this other thing. It's probably true for all collectors, and it might raise some eyebrows, if not actual hackles, especially in the age of the internet, where we sometimes feel like we shouldn't even have to go to the library to read a book. To a book collector, you see, the true freedom of all books is somewhere on his shelves. Not something you'd expect from a Marxist philosopher who wrote elsewhere that the struggling oppressed class itself is the depository of historical knowledge. You'd think, if he had a special book, a book you couldn't find anywhere else, that he would want to make it available to everyone. It's a fair point. But there might be something to be said for that book being loved, even coveted. You can't really love a library book in the same way as a book you own. Maybe the object can't feel the love, but it's good for the person to have a place to put that love, even if it's just on a shelf. This is Interstates, by the way, from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. We're going to talk with two people today, both about collecting. Both like to hold on to certain details from 20th century pop culture. One collects comic books, and the other, if he collects something, it's information about the pop charts of the 60s and 70s. Let's get to it. Malcolm Mobutu-Smith is a professor of ceramics here at Indiana University, and more importantly for our purposes here, he's also a dedicated comics collector. He's got an exhibit from his collection up right now on the IU Bloomington campus. It's called The Deep End, Golden Age Comics. It focuses on underwater imagery from 1938 to 1961. Malcolm's early interest in art and comics went hand in hand. Both my parents are are artists and uh, have degrees in art from Michigan State University, and art's been an indelible part of my entire life. And so it was a relatively easy leap for me to um, overlay the art and design that I saw even as a a young person about what was going on in comic books and popular media and say this is a valuable thing to do or to pursue. And so I thought about fantasies of becoming a comic book artist at the same time as I was sort of developing my other serious interests in fine art and eventually in ceramics. Did you, uh, were you into comics as a kid? I was, yes indeed. So uh, very much my memory is uh, about an NPR or public radio broadcast that was in Michigan, driving around in the car with my mother, probably 1978, 79, was nine years old. And I distinctly remember a piece, a segment like this, maybe, uh, talking about Michigan State's campus library collection, which had, at that time, the largest repository of comics of any university anywhere, 300,000 things. And I was, my mind was just blown away. And I said, you know, I know I've got some comics in my toy chest at home. And that day, I went down and pulled the few that were in the bottom of that out. And from that moment forward, I was a collector. So I've been doing it ever since. So how much of it was about reading versus talk about the relationship between reading and collecting? Well, they're always exciting. I mean, I remember many of the stories in the earliest comic books I have. I don't have memories of them as comic books. I was basically transported into the panels. I remember them almost like TV shows. And so the the pacing of them and even the framing, you know, you get absorbed into them and you sort of lose touch with the rest of reality. And I, like there's a, a one uh, title, which is uh, the Incredible Hulk annual number seven, which is written very much at the same time that the TV show was airing in the, in the late 70s. And it has the same feel and pacing of the, the, uh, television version, but I remember it more as a viewing, moving picture than I do as still images. 
and I, I have multiple copies of that book and I, it's one of my cherished pieces. It was probably one of the ones that was in that toy chest as well. So you were transported into it and then you also decided you wanted to start collecting them? Collecting them, yes. I, I amassed them. I took them to school with me every day to the point that eventually the stack got so large, but I insisted on bringing them and putting them on my school desk every day. And the teacher tolerated for a while, but once it got to like 50 or 60 and they were in two different paper bags, she was like, you can't keep bringing these in. all." The but I didn't want to be away from them. I needed them near me. And so that's when I graduated to my first comic book box, probably in fourth grade. Tell me about the comic book box. Just before I purchased uh, an official box that was designed to hold comics. And that meant that now I was even more legit, you know. And uh, from then on, it became a downward spiral. I started studying the uh, Overstreet comic book price guide probably more than I was doing schoolwork. I could remember the column page by memory of what title occurred where in the book. And we're talking about a book that's seven, eight, nine hundred pages long. Amazing. Were you uh, collecting in order partly to like sell them or was it mainly just the, you, no, I the wanna, satisfaction of just having No, I didn't, I didn't want to sell them so much. I mean, the value was interesting to me and it's another level of the intrigue is uh, that treasure hunting. Are you going to find that, that great sort of diamond in the rough somewhere or a lot of diamonds in the rough and somebody's collection that they're selling at a garage sale? I mean, I still have those those uh, excitements when I drive around the neighborhood now. I want to I stop and, and find those things. But uh, no, it was about amassing more. I wanted to have all of this or all of that, or specifically the Hulk was my first drug of choice when it came to comics. I wanted to have every Hulk comic book that there was, and I've achieved that long ago. So, <laughs> Was there a particular find that you just, that you especially remember? Oh, yes. When I was in junior high, I worked my way into an antique store bookshop in uh, Berwyn, Pennsylvania, and just made myself a frequent visitor. And uh, the owner was great. It was one of these amazing, stereotypically dusty, funky old places. And I would just start organizing things for him without being asked, just so I could have a place to hang out and be around this old stuff. Old life magazines, pulp things, ancient, ancient Bibles and you know, all kinds. It all fascinated me, the history, the, the, the fact that you're touching something that was from a different era. And in one of those boxes that I helped organize was a couple of loose comics and he gave them to me. You know, I asked, you know, kind of uh, you know, timidly asked if I could have these. And eventually he even paid me a little bit for some of my work that I did there. But he gave me these two books and one of them happened to be Superman number two, Coverless. And that was just tantalizing. I wish I still had that book. I, at a later point, traded it away for things that I thought I was more interested in at the time. But, you know, you have always have those losses that you want back. It's time for a quick break. When we come back, artist and comic book collector Malcolm Mobutu-Smith says finding the space for all those comic books isn't easy. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Malcolm Smith says, like any life, the life of a collector involves loss. Luckily, for a collector, sometimes those losses aren't permanent. It's part of the, the hobby, actually. We... We buy and sell, and then we, want, we buy back the things that we wish we hadn't sold. <laughs> so here's a practical question. As someone who hasn't really been a collector, uh, especially like that, although I've definitely had moments of seeing the appeal. So you were carrying them with you. You couldn't fit them at school. You bought the box you know, in fourth grade. You've been collecting ever since. Do you have to create like 
space in your house? Like, how do you have oh my room gosh. for all the stuff? <laughs> Thanks to my family, they tolerate my amazing amount of stuff. We have a room dedicated to it. It is a significant amount of material. I'm the one that organizes it and lugs it around most of the time. It's actually in our current home, it's occupied three different rooms in the last 10 years, having moved things around or getting situated. And it's gone from the top floor, the middle floor, and now it's in a basement, finished basement. It's got uh, light controls and, and atmosphere controls and safes and other things in it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Do you ever uh, bring people in to show off the collection? I bring my good friends, my colleagues, people that uh, I would like to share that with. It's a, it's a special thing. It's, uh, they're kept behind a, a curtain, and uh, it's a big reveal when I bring people down there. Like, I don't think you're prepared for the, what this room is like, and then I open it up, and it's, it's now bleeding out into the main part of our basement, so it's, it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the collection consists of, of comic books and other things related as Oh, well? yes. Comic books, toys, everything, anything that has the Hulk on it, any kind of piece of memorabilia, toy, napkin, there's soap that was produced in the late 70s, figural soap, toilet paper, toilet paper roll with panels printed on each of the... Oh, my God. The, oh, yeah. But the, the cool thing about that is the box, the, the graphics on the box are the impressive part, but you could use it. But, I mean, the more esoteric it is with the memorabilia, the more interesting. I have big little books, which predate comic books. They are another form of cartoon imagery that are tiny little three-inch by two-inch, both text and picture books magazines, pulp fiction magazines, toys. I have reference books, hundreds and hundreds of reference books on comics and cartoons. Lunch boxes, the metal lunch boxes from the dawn of that era to um, when they basically ended, when they outlawed them in schools in 1985. They've come back since then, but the last uh, lunch box was uh, the Rambo one, which is also graphically the most uninteresting. But I've got the first lunch box with the litho image on it, which is Hopalong Cassidy, and I've got probably almost three or four hundred more, both metal and plastic. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I didn't know they outlawed. I would have just been starting school in 85, so yep. I didn't know they outlawed them. They, they, be, they claimed that they were being used as weapons. The, the metal things could be brandished and hit, hit people with them, so they thought it was a no-go. Sounds like a moral panic to me. Yeah, moral panic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what made you decide to do this particular exhibition? Well, once I became more sophisticated in my collecting, which happened pretty quickly in junior high and high school, I started going after the scent of the older books, books that were, you know, giving me a peek at like what, what the origins of comic book illustration was like. And it's tantalizing in its crudeness, the, the drawings, the, the kinds of characters that were invented, everybody trying to strike gold like Superman. So between 38 and 45, there were dozens and dozens of copycat superheroes, which most people never know even the first name of. Who's the Blue Blaze? Who's Dynamo? Who's Flexo? You know, all these superheroes that were trying to to make their owners of those companies a lot of money. And so I was more intrigued by those. I wanted to get the rarer, more obscure, golden age things. And I found a lot of them even in high school. I had the books taped up like wallpaper in, in my room to the point that there was no room left for those. And Along the way, getting those books, getting Golden Age superhero books is amazing. It's very difficult. It's expensive. And one of them happened to be an underwater image. And it just struck me as profoundly awesome. And this happened late in life. This is in my 
probably 25, 26 years ago when I was living in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And I was, I had a job at that point. I was beginning my first teaching part of my teaching career at, at Western Kentucky University. And I had the ability to spend more money on books and I found this book and I was like, Wiz Comics number 19 has Captain Marvel, otherwise known as Shazam, with a shark in a headlock in the very, very beginning of this title's origin. So issue 19 is about two years into the existence of Wiz Comics. And Wiz Comics is the parent or the sister cousin to Action Comics. And Captain Marvel, in fact, was more popular than Superman, sold more issues month by month than Superman did. And yet they were willing to risk the graphic layout of this thing, the shark's tail obscures the branding of Wiz Comics significantly. A, a, probably a third of the letters are obstructed by the tail. The, the diegetic space of what the action is happening in the picture plane then incorporates itself into the graphic space of the title in a weird way. So it's like all this stuff fascinates me about comics, their design, their layout, why they were set up that way to sit on the, the newsstand so you could see the the masthead, but also in some cases you would see the artwork first, depending on how the newsstand was laid out. And mm. so the designers of these covers would position information in certain ways, but they were willing to obstruct all that for the sake of this exciting image. And then I noticed that what's going on in these underwater images is unique amongst all the stuff that gets designed in comics and that the challenge or the problem that each of these different artists have to confront is how do we show with the limitations of graphic systems, line, four-color printing, a, a, a material substance of what people are in. So when Superman's flying, you draw a cityscape, you draw him above the cityscape, you draw him in outer space or whatever, but you don't have any, you don't have to confront the material of air. But here, every single iteration of underwater covers, each artist across the spectrum of the time period that I'm choosing, in their own way, has to deal with, well, how am I going to represent liquid space, liquid water, graphically? And that, to me, seems like it fascinated me enough that for almost 30 years now, I've been trying to amass every single example so that I could do a comparative study and learn something about the, the innovation and the decision-making based on this single limitation or this single opportunity. It's not so much a limitation, it's an opportunity to do things. And it became a playground for different kinds of ways of using color to show an aqueous space, showing things that interrupt the characters in front to show water waviness in behind. How do you show them? They look like they're floating in amber sometimes because there's a weightlessness that needs to be depicted. All of this is fascinating, and I don't see it happening in other, in the other titles or other kinds of subject matter. So the theme just fascinates me, and I'd sort of put myself in the obsessive collector mode and said, I want all of them. So then I had to figure out where they were or which ones they were. So you have to do research of like, well, what are these covers I need to find? Yeah, and how would you figure that out without being able to see them necessarily? So the Overstreet Comic Price Guide for most of its existence. It, for the first printed one was in 1970. They also, with the lists of books that they would publish the the lists in alphabetical order, but they would also give you values for different grades. They would also publish a few images and it became part of their system to have a sort of a gallery in the front of the book and the back of the book that were full color 
a few pages that they spent extra money on to show full color books that you just didn't see. They might have the number there in the listing. Well, there's a pep comic number five, but you don't know what the cover is. And then if that one year they decided to publish the cover of pep five, you're like, oh, wow, I want that book, right? Because you see it. Well, up until 1992, there was no unified, easy access version of seeing this stuff. Some fanzines would publish reproductions, black and white things of old books. But Ernest and Mary Gerber went on this long research photographic journey in the 80s and published a two-volume massive tome research thing that's 40,000 images of hopefully every Golden Age book, 40,000 books. And they went to collectors all over the country and literally photographed and then printed this gorgeous two-volume book. And I had to have that. And it was right on the cusp of the internet. So as soon as it came out, it almost became irrelevant. Now, the databases that eventually now exist on the internet weren't right there right in 92 or 93, but it sort of became quickly irrelevant. And then eBay came about and books that were thought to be either obscure or non-existent started popping up there with that new system. And then every other kind of auction house that now exists, more and more access to images come out. And so my list would get bigger. But really, I went through every page of the photo journal guide and I was looking at little postage stamp size images of all these books and going, oh, that's an underwater. Oh, that's an underwater. Oh, that's one. And I would add it to the list. Or as I'm searching eBay, something would pop up I'm like, wait, I didn't know there was a Mutton Jeff that had an underwater. Then I have a whole new title. I've got to look at every Mutton Jeff book and say, how many did they do underwater? And so it never ends. And even to like last week, my son was trying to, because he knows I'm putting this show together. He said, I'm going to find another one. I'm going to find another one you don't have yet. And he found one. So you're a ceramicist professionally. And you've been collecting all these comic books and thinking about this underwater thing in particular. And, you know, water is really important in ceramics, too. Do you feel like there's been any overlap in thinking about the underwater images and how it's made you think about your ceramics? Or just- Yeah, my... My artwork, whether it's ceramic or otherwise, has long pulled from the graphic inspiration of print media like comics. And because I've lived with comics the whole time I've been a clay artist, I think it's only natural that that's just one of the sort of like influences in the background of my life that I study it. And so it it sort of populates my thinking when I'm designing, when I'm drawing, when I'm Uh, starting to glaze a piece, but even glazing, the more I've been thinking about it, the liquid presence of dipping a pot in glaze is sort of submerging aspects of it. So if if in my works, I do a lot of carving and layering of information. And then there's times when I'll put a glaze over the top of it, trapping like amber, an image underneath that. And it's not me directly trying to pull in the underwater theme into this, just a a circumstantial similarity that there are sometimes you can dip a pot or a vessel and it gets a horizon line of where the glaze stops and it becomes like the edge of the water or, you know, the shoreline. But more recently in the last 10 years, I've been using some of the more negative parts of uh, our negative history of racial stereotyping that existed in print media like comic books. And I've been pulling from those sources literally and putting them into my ceramic sculptures. So I've, I've made a, a sort of an umbilical to this other part of my life that's directly feeding us. So I could get, I have a sort of opportunity to study that stuff as I'm making my clay work. Reproducing those images then brings a kind of like ironic or critical. Yeah, it's definitely a, a sardonic and critical 
take on how far we haven't really come. And so I think although they are not acceptable now, they haven't gone away, unfortunately, these, these attitudes and images. And so I felt the need to point my artistic lens toward that, and I'm continuing to do that in my current work. And so it, it overlaps my collecting, but uh, I think it's only circumstantial in that way. How is the golden age of comics kind of still relevant for us today? Well, all comics or any media from the past is relevant because it becomes a sort of a time capsule of advertising, attitudes, information that's lost to us on a daily basis. Like how much did a piece of gum cost? Well, you look at a, the ad in the back and you can see chewing gum that you're connected to because Wrigley's existed back then. And you go, oh, I can get Wrigley's today. And you can see these things and you can start to get a sense of what it was like to live back then. But also some of those senses of what it likes to live back then weren't necessarily always pretty or good. And then we have to sort of learn from that. And so I think they're tantalizing artifacts of a bygone era, but they aren't so bygone. And so maybe they need to, we need to be more aware. And they were, this was low level entertainment and ubiquitous. And it was being fed to people without much critical analysis whatsoever as like what this means or why are we, why do we think it's okay to do this? And so I have this sort of weird fascination. It might be a little masochistic, I don't know, about looking at these times that portrayed a kind of uglier history about race politics, the attitudes towards women. Some of the stories, I mean, most of the stories from the 40s till, I'm sorry to say, the early 70s have really, really weird attitudes about race politics and gender, which are fascinating. But, you know, it's just interesting. I just love it. Yeah, it, there's just such an interesting tension, I think, in looking at those older things and kind of like you were already saying, noticing how the baldness of the misogyny or the racism would be more likely to be avoided today. But then to, to if you think about it, not that hard. Exactly. <laughs> you see the ways that maybe all we've done is kind of painted over that. Um, or there's a new baldness that we're we are ignorant of because it's so close to us that we don't recognize yeah, right. what are we ta- what are we letting go as normalized that was normalized then we see it now in hindsight it doesn't look so normal yes but it was then and it was just given to kids for a dime and it, you know it was this this these comics were chewed up and read and thrown away like a like a piece of candy and now we're you know, they're rare because of that and they have value but they have value culturally historically and otherwise which which I find interesting. So, and I hope everybody else does too. Malcolm, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Alex. Appreciate it. Malcolm's exhibit of underwater imagery from his personal collection is up at the Grunwald Gallery on the Indiana University campus until March 4th. And by the way, he wants you to come see it. It's just going to be awesome. Come look and enjoy. This is a singular moment to see so many things side by side in a unique performance of this material. I don't think you'd be able to get access to this in a library. You wouldn't be able to get access to this in a comic shop in this way or even a convention. I mean, you can go to conventions and see thousands of comics, but not under one theme and side by side by side by side by side. Malcolm Mabudu Smith teaches ceramics at the Eskenazi School of Art, Architecture, and Design and collects comic books wherever and whenever he can. All right, that music's coming on, so I think it's time for a break. 
When we come back, what can we learn from the pop charts of the 1960s and 70s? Can we determine once and for all which song was most popular? We'll dig in after the break. Interstates, Alex Chambers. Think back to the time before Spotify, before Napster, before mixed CDs, yes, even before mixed tapes. If you wanted to hear the new hit, you could either sit by the radio and hope it would come on, or you could go to the record store and spend your precious paper root money to buy a whole album. Would the rest of the songs be any good? No way to know till you brought it home. Or you could just buy the single itself, but even that was a bit of an investment. How to know which songs were worth listening to. That's where the charts came in. There were three big ones, Billboard, Cashbox, and Record World, and each told a slightly different story. Our own John Bailey made a call to find out more. I'm speaking with Bill Carroll, who is an adjunct professor of chemistry at Indiana University and who, from his home in Dallas, has long enjoyed a second life as a student of the pop charts. He's the author of a number of books, including Ranking the 70s, Ranking the 80s, Ranking the albums spanning the stereo LP era from 1963 through the 80s and ranking the rock writers and recently published an article titled Did Billboard, Cashbox and Record World Charts Tell the Same Story? Perception and Reality, 1960 to 1979. Bill Carroll, thank you for being here to talk about your work. John, it's great to be with you. So you'll be tracing uh, the period of 62 to 72, huge period of change. Would it be reductive to say that albums started out that period as really being products for adults and 45s were more nearly the province of, say, teenagers or kids, but then teenagers and, 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 and kids began to, to discover albums because something more was being delivered to them? Sure. Absolutely. And, and there's, there's one other small dynamic going on that, that at least mattered to me. You know, in 1963, if I was going to the record store, um, there was an economic decision to be made with what I was going to do with my money. And I didn't have that much of it. And if I was going to the record store, I'm buying a single because I know I want what's on the A side. I might be able to learn to like what's on the B side. But if I'm buying an album, I got no idea what the rest of that is. And it's $4. I mean, it's a lot of money. So it, I, I think part of it was kids growing up, you know, my generation got older, had more money, could dispose of it differently, and were treating their music differently. So by the end of the, by the, end of the 60s, it wasn't, you know, such an economic big deal to, to, to buy an album. Many of us have these stories about the album that got away. I can't tell you the number of times in Blanchard's record store in Crown Point, Indiana, um, I, I, I sat there looking at All Summer Long by the Beach Boys, thinking, looks like I would really like this album, but man, there's nine cuts on there that I don't, that I don't know, and I've, got, and I've got no way of finding out. There was no Spotify. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't figure that out. So yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's driven by kids. About 15 years ago, maybe at the height of the download era, the band Radiohead put out a record called In Rainbows. And they made it available on their website, I believe, uh, for a download at 
uh, the price of the downloaders choosing. They put in wow. how much money they wanted to pay. Each downloader did, and they had the option of paying nothing, and some people did. Uh, other people paid way more than might have been expected. But Radiohead discovered that people, on average, were willing to pay about a dollar a song. It was kind of as if the old classic singles era had returned. A song was worth about a dollar, and that's still true to the extent that people are downloading. But People really aren't buying music the way they used to, which leads me to wonder: with sales and airplay still factors in the charts to some extent, but with sales so marginalized in favor of people renting music basically through Spotify, what does it mean to have a hit single now? Well, it's it's all streams, and 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 what it, what it means is you have. There is no economic component to your choice of music. In the 60s and 70s, if you wanted to hear a record, you could buy it, or you could wait for it to come up on one of two radio stations in town. But you didn't have the option to dictate when that would happen unless you called your favorite DJ and you know he would he would play it for you. So if you wanted to hear a record when you wanted to hear it, it was an economic decision. These days, it's not an economic decision. You've paid your 10 bucks for Spotify or, or whatever, and maybe you didn't even do that and you, and you live through the commercials. So you can listen to anything anytime you want to, any, any place. So it takes the economic component out of it. It simply means what, what is it that you'd like to listen to right now? Um, and, and so this is why I would find it daunting, if not impossible, to try to draw comparisons between the chart dynamics of the 60s and 70s and the chart dynamics of today. Today, it's not that uncommon to have a record stay on the chart for over a year. And that, and that absolutely never, ever, ever came close to happening in, in the 60s and 70s. I, I think for, for the longest time, Paul, Paul Davis's I Go Crazy had about 40 weeks on the chart and that just seemed to be, be forever. Or, or soft cells painted blood. Sometimes I feel I've got to run away. May have been the first one that got into the 50 week kind of category, but that's what early 80s, right? So it was it was it was changing then, but but today I don't I don't have a good concept of how I would normalize the results from the 1960s with the 20 teens or 20, 2020s. That's, it, that's a hard, hard question. So you could ask, ask yourself the question. So what, what constitutes um, a truly transcendent record in, in these days? And I am sure you would get odd results over, over the years, but you could still probably apply something that sounds like, like that sort of thoughts. And I'm looking for the strongest outlier and, and normalize that. You're a quantifier. I am a quant, that is for sure. Talk a little bit about how you go about quantifying retrospectively how popular a given record was. So here's what you can't do. Um, you really don't have sales data, and you really don't have airplay data. All you have are the charts, which was in some fashion derived from sales data and airplay data. If you look at that, those rankings versus time, it kind of describes a curve, almost like you threw a ball up in the air, kind of an inverse parabola. 
And the way people, most, most of the people who do this come into it is to start with taking the, the ranking that a record has in a week and um, uh, giving it a certain number of points. All right, so number one gets 100 points, uh, number 100 gets one point, and, and we're fine. The difficulty is that doesn't work very well because the difference between one and two is the same as the difference between 99 and 100. So the next thing that you do is sort of elongate that scale and go from 1,000 down to one with some bigger chunks at the top. But it's still not quite right because the charts change over time. And you do all that not knowing for sure exactly what the secret sauce is in terms of the chart methodologies. You know they changed over time. You know there was some mix of airplay and and sales going into it, but there was a lot of tweaking going on. Maybe you don't know exactly when in all cases, but what did you learn from looking through the charts from those three publications from the 60s and 70s? So the prejudice going into this, and and you heard this particularly from artists, who um, cared deeply about whether where their records charted, but they felt that the three magazines did different things. And, and, and maybe to, to just throw a, a broad brush at it, they felt Cashbox was more interested in sales. Um, Record World might be more interested in airplay. Billboard being the, the, the biggest of the three was probably something of a follower. But there are some, some uh, artists, Tommy James was one of them. He published this in his book called um, Me, the Mob and the Music, which is a pretty interesting book. Um, and he, he expressed just exactly that thought. So my question was, okay, that's a testable hypothesis. Is there any difference uh, among the way these magazines treated the records? And, and the answer is, at the broadest level, no. They all tell the same story. Statistically, there are small differences, but you wouldn't know it because they're well less than a fraction of, of a week. On the other hand, they treated different records very differently in, in, in certain cases. Is it possible that some of that disparate treatment owed to who was being sampled? Is it possible Cashbox or Record World results were skewed by the stations and the stores they surveyed? Because they, they weren't at the time. Nielsen SoundScan didn't exist yet, so there was no real comprehensive accounting for sales. They were sampling activity at stores and at radio stations around the country. And, and in fact, you know, the, the state of, of, of charts gathering data in the 60s and 70s was something like the state of medicine about the year 1000, but it was very crude. The only way we know what, what the secret sauce was, was by a very few number of publications. For sales, they would send out a poll to uh, wholesalers and retailers in 22 cities and, and have them say what, what records they felt were selling well. And they simply took the radio station playlist and they took the top 30 from that playlist and, and weighted them. There was a fair amount of chicanery associated with this. But remember, all these magazines were trying to do was to kind of transmit to people, you know, who was listening to what and what was selling. It, it was very different than today where, where, you know, the general public or the listening public pays attention to them. Even something as simple as this. I, th- I think... You know, sometimes the editors may have fallen in love with, with a record themselves, or they had a bias in favor of momentum. When you think about artists who never reached pole position, never made it to number one, you've got classic artists in there. Bob Dylan never made it. 
uh, at least on the Hot 100, uh, Bruce Springsteen, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Ton of classic songs in the space of a few years in the 60s and 70s, all number twos at best. Do you think there are any meaningful, inherent differences fundamentally between a number one song and a number two song? Think about a song like Can't Buy Me Love by, by the Beatles. It got to number one in about four weeks. I mean, shot up like a skyrocket. Now, I mean, you can only go as high as number one. But, you know, what if there were higher numbers? I mean, you could imagine this thing rocketing way up in the next the next two weeks and, and, and being totally above everything else. And there's no way of, of, of keeping of keeping track of that. So what gets something to, to number one? It's, it, it's, really hard, it's really hard to say. And the interesting thing is you can see this consensus in some eras and not in others. If you go to the 1980s and you look at um, the ranking of songs through the 1980s, no song that hit the charts after 1984 got as high as number 50 for the decade. In other words, all of the truly high charting songs happened in the first five years of the decade. And, and one other way of looking at that would be to say, you know, in the first part of the decade, it was common to see records at number one for three, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. In the last half of the decade, maybe one or two got to three weeks at number one. There was a constant churn of, of what was going on. It's like people were looking for the next shiny object. The way I account for it is, first of all, it was not about one magazine. The same thing happened both in Billboard and Cashbox. So it's not magazine dependent. And, and it's also just about singles and not about albums, because that behavior you only saw in the singles charts and not on the albums charts. And, and what I attribute it to is, is that word consensus, but also what it means is in the 1986 to 1990 time for period, there, there was no dominant genre. Think about the, the, the late 1970s, wherein the dominant genre was disco. So there was some consensus about what was good now, and, and, and it was that, that kind of stuff. Records by the 80s, though, were staying on the charts about twice as long, about 13 weeks on average, compared with about seven weeks in the 60s. How do you account for that? In the 60s, Singles came first. So, you know, you would go into the, in the studio to record a single. By the 80s, most people wouldn't do that. By the 80s, most people would go in to record an album. For the production costs, for the promotion costs, for the underlying costs, by the time you get to the 1980s, we, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't waste that. There were just fewer singles. And you wanted to milk them more. You wanted to get more out of individual singles. And, and then as far as albums were concerned, you wanted to get more out of what you'd invested in doing that, that album product. And that changeover, you could start to see it happen kind of by the, the late 70s. For your next book, I understand you are actively delving into the first decade of what might be called the album era, starting in the early 60s, looking at 62-ish to 72. Our culture changed a great deal during that time, maybe in part led by the music of the time, which really flourished in the, in the post-Beatles years, for sure. How did LPs change during that time? If you put yourself in the context of 1962, 
the albums you would you would buy were soundtracks, original cast, comedy, classical, things that were inherently long form and precious little rock. Well, by the 1972, it had totally flipped. The, the song stylists were largely gone. People were writing their own music. That was to the point where you'd buy an album for one cut. And I have a number of those. And, and, and the rest of the cuts were rather weak. And, and clearly, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, many of the, the mid-60s acts that didn't just go into the studio and record their own version of Strangers in the Night were writing their own stuff, putting it on their records, and something else was happening. The albums themselves, I mean, they, they were just afterthoughts, you know, for, for the, the pop music market for the, for, for the most part. And when it came to the point where, you know, you would go out and look for an album, you'd look for Sgt. Pepper's, or you would look for Abbey Road, or, or, or Exile on Main Street. And that's another thing that changed is, you know, the, the double album, by the time you got to 1970, there's a, a large number of double albums. It's like, what changed? Everything. Just everything. What has surprised you the most over the course of all your record chart research? Looking back at previous eras, when you think of what the really strong, enduring records were, they are not the ones that were wildly popular in their day. They were not the transcendent songs in, in, in their time. If music can take you back to high school, then that song puts you at a very specific point in time. And, and that's what, what, what piques your memory. It doesn't necessarily mean that that becomes your favorite song for, for all time, although it might mature into that. But you know, how do you explain a Judy in disguise? We're not talking about music that will last. A thousand years from now, I don't know that we're going to be playing Judy in Disguise. And yet, big song in its day. And, and if you happen to be living through that, you can, you can put yourself exactly where you were where, when, when that record was popular. So I think it's the, the difference between what charted strong in its day and what endured. It's kind of the, the surprise. Looked at the records that had been played most often on, on the air in the previous century, in the, in the 1900s. And, and, and the winner was You've Lost That Love and Feeling by Righteous Brothers. Now, it was, it was a, okay, it was a big song. It was not that big a song by, by comparison. And yet, that's what wound up getting played more often uh, in, it, in, in, in its lifetime from the 1960s on. So things mature differently and, and, and you look at them differently. And I, and I think that's probably my biggest surprise. All I can say is this continues to be fascinating work for me, John. When, I, when, you know, when you're trained in the sciences, um, what you're trained to do is go out, find interesting topics, research them, um, write them up and publish them and, and, and publish this work for, for, for other people. It's why even after a 37-year career in industry, I still, I still feel like what I was taught in grad school about what you're supposed to do as a scientist, it's still, you know, it's still important. It's just that, that you know, now this, this database that I have with all this, this record chart data, that's my lab now. But it's, it, it's fun to devise experiments to go in and, and do those experiments. And, you know, somebody said that once that, you know, the old line about how uh, 
Archimedes, when he sat in the bathtub, said Eureka. Well, Eureka, Eureka is not the word that scientists use when they've discovered something. The words are, hmm, that's funny. <laughs> and, 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 it's, and, it's, and it's really true. When you look at something and it, and it surprises you, say, why in the world would that happen? And that's what sends you down the path. Bill Carroll, in conversation with WFIU's John Bailey. You can find all the details on Bill Carroll's website, ranking.rocks. Bill Carroll, I gotta hand it to you. Ranking does rock. That's it for the show today. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aya Bonbinder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Jack Lindner, Yane Sanchez-Lopez, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to Malcolm Mabudu-Smith, Bill Carroll, and my colleague Aaron Kane for being the radio voice of Walter Benjamin. All right, time for some found sound. is a walk to work in wet snow. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. Subliminal, we make the round sound soon.